tonight. The passage that we're going to look at it comes from Paul's letter to the Colossian church. So Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22 and reading just a few verses through chapter 4, verse 1. So Colossians 3, verse 22 through 4, 1. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is the authority in our lives. It's um, inerrant, that is, it speaks without error, and the reason for that is because we believe that God is its ultimate author. And so, as I read tonight this ancient letter written 2,000 years ago to a young church plant, to a new church plant here in the modern day, believe and remember that this is God's word for you. It's relevant, it's applicable, it's authoritative, and it's life-changing. So give it your attention as we hear from the apostle, beginning in Colossians 3, verse 22. Slaves or bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves or bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray together and uh, ask him to help us understand it well. Please join me. Father, we come before you tonight, people coming from all sorts of places geographically, Some of us have lived in the San Antonio area for most of our lives. Some of us are just brand new to the area. Some of us drove two minutes to get here, and some of us drove 20. Father, we come to you tonight also from all sorts of places emotionally and psychologically. Some of us are frazzled and anxious. Some of us are despondent and sad. Some of us are uncertain and doubting. Some of us are joyful and excited. Father, we as humans are such a mixed bag. You made us in your image and you created us good. And we indeed still bear your image. And yet because of sin in our lives and because of our persistent tendency to rebel against you as our king, we are a mess so much of the time. Father, we pray tonight that you would come and remind us, no matter where we find ourselves here tonight, emotionally or spiritually, that you would remind us of what is true, that you are good and that you love your people, that you pursue people who run from you and that indeed you do chase us down by your grace, and that you care about the everyday issues that we face in our life. You care about our relationships. You care about our marriages. You care about our work. Father, tonight we ask that you would remind us or maybe teach us for the first time how much you do care and how indeed the gospel, the gospel does change everything about us. So change us tonight, we ask, for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, One of the most popular shows of the last decade or or so is a show that comes on AMC, and it's called Mad Men. Some of you might be familiar with Mad Men. It's a very critically acclaimed TV show. I've seen just a little bit of it. Marianne and I watched a few episodes a number of years ago, and... uh, we watched the, actually the pilot, the very first episode of Mad Men. And Mad Men is about a man named Don Draper, who is uh, a, a Madison Avenue 
advertising executive in New York City in the 1950s. And the show presents him, especially the very first episode, as, as you know, living life in the fast lane. He's very successful. He's got a lot of money. He works hard. And he's really, really good at what he does. He's also presented as a, as a chronic womanizer, as an alcoholic, as the type of person that would, that would run over anyone or do just about anything to further his own standard of living or to, to win whatever his, his objective is. And the first episode of this series follows him around from one meeting to another in the tall skyscrapers of 1950s New York City and show what life is like in the fast lane and that sort of world. But the most important and also the most powerful scene of that first episode is the very last scene. In the very last scene of the first episode of Mad Men, you see this man, Don Draper, this fantastically wealthy, successful guy that most guys would want to be like and that most girls would want to be with, driving out of Manhattan into the New Jersey suburbs to a small, relatively small house and pulling into the driveway. And he enters into this house and goes into one of the bedrooms and kisses a little boy goodnight. And then he goes back into the master bedroom at the end of the hallway and gets into bed with a lovely, beautiful wife and goes to sleep. And the credits roll. The shock of that first episode is that Don Draper is a man living two different lives. There's the work Don Draper, the man who lives his life in the fast lane and will do anything or betray anyone to meet his stated objective. And then there's the family man, Don Draper, the homebody, the guy who has a wife and 2.5 kids and a mortgage. And the whole point of the show And part of the reason for its success and acclaim is that it portrays in very stark and sometimes vivid and painful detail how this man's life falls apart as he attempts to be two people, really, in one body. And really the great question that that show is asking in all sorts of provocative ways is this, who is the real you? Ask yourself that question. Silently. Who is the real you? You know, we have a tendency, and I think Mad Men captures this part of humanity so well. We have a tendency to compartmentalize our lives in certain ways. Especially if you are someone who works for a living, which most of you do, either in the home or outside of the home. You perhaps might be a certain type of person in your job the place where you spend the vast majority of your waking time, and when you are at home or at church, God forbid, you're someone very different. You put on a different mask. You live a different life. Who is the real you? That's the question that Mad Men is asking. And let me just be straight with you at the very beginning and give you the answer. Who you are at work is the real you. Who you are in the vast majority of your waking time is the real you. If you've been at some time in your life or if you're right now trying to be the cutthroat executive or the guy who will cut corners or do whatever you're going to do at work and you're trying to be the family man and the nice guy and the church-going religious dude 
in the other aspect of your life, let me just tell you right now that the first of those is who you really are. Often we are shocked to really hear that and believe that, but I believe that the Bible and Jesus in particular calls us to examine what's going on in the everyday aspects of our life. That's what we're doing, actually, in this series that we're currently in. This is the fourth week of a six-week series that we're calling Everyday Gospel, where we're really asking the big question of how does believing the gospel of Jesus Christ make a difference in, in the everyday, in your normal routines of life? So we've looked at emotional health. We've looked at money. Last week, Tim preached on the gospel and marriage. And tonight, I want to talk with you just for a few minutes about, about work. And don't Don't miss the idea that that work is something that's very important in the Christian scriptures. It's talked about in various ways all through the Bible, Old and New Testament. Jesus cared deeply about work. He told parables that are relevant to work. His overt teachings oftentimes were relevant to work. And the New Testament letters also speak about work. It's a very, very normal, routine, and essentially important element of each and every one of our lives. So what difference does being a follower of Jesus make in your work? That's the question we want to ask ourselves tonight. And we're going to use these few verses from Colossians chapter 3 and 4 to do it. And just before we dive in, let me tell you what Paul's doing here. He's writing this letter to a young church plant in Colossae, which is modern-day Turkey. And in the first couple of verses of chapter 3, in some of the best, best verses in the whole Bible, lays out for us, Paul does, what the gospel is. He says, you've been raised with Jesus. You have died with Christ, and right now you are raised with him and seated at the right hand of God. Your life is hidden with Christ. In Christ, with God, he's, he's talked about these glorious, amazing, earth-shattering truths of the gospel. And then the rest of the chapter is him applying what that means. <clears throat> and interestingly, the way he applies the gospel is by talking about normal stuff. He talks about being a kid and being a parent. He talks about being a husband and being a wife. And in our verses, he talks about being... Well, in his context, primarily a slave or a master, and for our purposes, an employee or an employer. And so here's the main idea I want to communicate to you tonight. The gospel gives you a new way in your work because the gospel means you are serving a new master. So if you leave with anything, leave with that. The gospel gives you a new way in your work because the gospel means that you are serving a new master. And so let's break that statement down as we look at this text into two parts. First, the gospel gives you a new way as an employee. Second, the gospel gives you a new way as an employer. Okay, you ready? That's where we're going. The gospel gives you a new way as an employee. First, that's what Paul's getting at here for our purposes in verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, I'm aware that the word there is slave or bondservant, and that Paul is speaking in an ancient context wherein a third of the people in the Roman Empire in that day were slaves. And I know that there's a lot that could be said and a lot of questions that might come into your mind about what the Bible has to say about slavery, and I would love to talk with you about that subject. It's actually one that is somewhat fascinating to me, and I'm happy to speak with you about it after the sermon. 
<laughs> There's a lot of great things to be said about the idea of slavery and what the Bible says about it. It's against it, by the way. And, uh, but for our purposes, I think we can take these verses and get out of them a biblical theology of the idea of work in general. And so read there where it says slaves, employees, for our purposes. And what Paul is getting at here in these first few verses is how the gospel is intended to impact your life as a worker. Your life as an employee. And so what I want to do is really just ask two questions about how the gospel gives a new way as an employee. First, how how does the gospel change the way you think about work and the way you actually do work? And then second, why? Why does the gospel make any difference in your work? So the how is very obvious. Look in the text. The first thing Paul says is, if you're a worker, if you're an employee, you should work hard, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, and you should do it with integrity. That's a one-word summary of what he says throughout the rest of chapter 3. So first, how are you to work if you're a Christian? How are you to work if you believe the gospel? How does the gospel transform the way you live as an employee? Well, it means that you're to work hard. I mean, Paul says right there, obey, and note what he says, in everything, those who are your earthly masters. Now, he doesn't mean literally, if your boss tells you to go kill a drifter, you know, who's in the alley, that you should do that. The implication is, uh, the implication is that you should do everything under subservience and submission to your employer, whether it's pleasant or not. When your boss tells you to go sweep floors and you have a PhD, you go sweep floors. When your boss tells you to do something that you love, you go do something you love. But the bottom line is that for Christians, we are called to work and to work hard. Secondly, we're to work hard and to do it with honesty and integrity. Look at what he says next. You're to obey in everything. You're to work hard, but not, notice there, not by way of eye service, Not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. And then verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily. I love that word. Literally, that means uh, with all your soul. Put your whole soul, your whole life in a way, into it. That's what Paul's getting at here. To think about it in another way, you you are to be a whole person at work. You're to work just as hard, just as diligently, just as competently, and just as efficiently when your boss is on vacation in the Bahamas as when your boss is staring at your computer screen behind your shoulder. You're to work just as diligently, just as effectively, and just as hard when the cat, so to speak, is away. We all know that that's something that is a big, big problem, not just in culture generally, but oftentimes in our own lives. It's such a problem that there have been shows made about how lazy people tend to be when the boss isn't looking. There's one show called Undercover Boss. I, uh, Marianne and I, like, one night we're flipping around and we watched, like, half of one episode, and I remembered it when I was looking into this sermon, and so I went and found some episodes on YouTube and watched a few, and one of the episodes is, uh, this is, this show is where the CEOs of these big companies dress up like, you know, normal day laborers, and they go into one of their stores incognito, undercover, and just sort of observe how just the normal employee is acting. And the normal employee doesn't know that, you know, the big, big boss man is the guy standing right next to him. And so in this episode I watched, 
It's this hardware store. I've got like you know hundreds of hardware stores around the Midwest. And the CEO is this former military guy. I mean, about as straight laced and buttoned up as you can get. And they dress him up to look like a, you know, to look like kind of a, a hippie from the '60s that doesn't know that it's not the '60s anymore. You know, he's got long hair and and uh, he's you know just really laid back. And he goes into this this hardware store and gets a new job apparently. And uh, one of the, I guess, one of the workers in the store begins to train him and show him around. And the first scene is hilarious because this straight-laced CEO goes, so what is it we do here? And the, and the employee looks at the guy, and he goes, here's what we do, man. We pick up women, we smoke in the bathroom, and we have as much fun as we can. <laughs> and, and the CEO's like, really? That's what we do here. The shareholders will be so thrilled to hear that, you know. And uh, they go through the scenario, and it, it's, it's bad. It, it's awkwardly bad. And uh, eventually, you know, the, the reveal at the end is when they find out this guy's the CEO. But the whole show is premised on the idea that everybody knows that when the cat's away, the, the mouse, mice are going to play, you know, that, that you don't really do as much or work as hard, and you cut corners when when the boss isn't around, when no one's going to know. That's the exact opposite of what Paul is calling Christians to here, you see. He's saying that you don't work hard just when there's people around. You don't do it to be by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but with all of you all the time. Think about this by way of application. Maybe the primary way you as an employee... Glorify and honor God and follow Jesus in whatever vocation he has called you to is by doing it well and doing it honestly. You know, it's interesting that Paul doesn't say here, and this is the Apostle Paul, like this is the Jesus guy, man. This is the church planning machine. And he doesn't say when he's applying the gospel to our work that you should evangelize every single person at every single opportunity. And he doesn't say that you should quit your job and go be a foreign missionary. Now, those are obviously great things to do, but that's not what he says. He says, primarily, you live out the gospel in your work by working hard and by working with integrity. Here's one important thing I want you to take away. Oftentimes, in the church, we have taught workers of all sorts of persuasions and vocational backgrounds that nine-tenths of their life or whatever percentage of their life they're at work or thinking about work is functionally irrelevant to their spiritual growth. And the way they grow is just kind of by coming to church and reading their Bible and doing this and that. And those things are great. But what God is trying to communicate to us here is that your work matters deeply to God, particularly when you're working hard at it and doing it honorably and competently. It's very, very spiritual. Dorothy Sayers was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and she wrote this fascinating essay called Why Work in the 50s. And um, let me just read one paragraph from that essay because I found this to be very relevant for what I'm trying to say. Listen, she says, How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with three-fourths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion make upon him is that he should make good tables. That's true. All work 
is good and valuable. And God cares deeply about how much effort and how much diligence and how much honesty and integrity you are putting into your day jobs. Listen, God cares about the quality of your work and you being a blessing in the world in the way that he has called you to be a blessing vocationally. You might never have heard that in a service before. So I want to tell you again that God is honored when you physicians practice medicine and advance research and pour your life into that pursuit so that people are healthier and able to be cared for in more effective ways. God is honored when plumbers plumb to God's glory, when they charge a fair rate and they take care of people in good ways. God is honored when you teachers expand the minds of your students by introducing them to truth and to beauty in effective ways. God is honored when the Starbucks barista serves you a warm cup of coffee with a smile on her face and with kindness in her heart. God is honored. God is honored when you stay-at-home moms who are teaching your children Work hard to prepare them for life when they're outside of your house and work hard and diligently day and night to keep the house in order and to run errands and to care for your family. God is honored when you pilots and military personnel obey your commanding officers and work to protect and defend the people of this particular country. God is honored when you lawyers pursue justice and equity, either through the defense of the oppressed and the guilty even, or through the prosecution of those who have been convicted. God is honored when you do what he's called you to do and when you do it well, when you work hard, when you care about what you do and are proud of what you do. That's how you should work as a Christian. And so the second question is why? And, and here's the rub. You are not to work hard and with integrity and honesty and pursue excellence in your craft so that you can make more money. And you're not to do that so that you can receive the acclaim of your colleagues. And you're not to do that so that you can generate more and more power and expertise in your field. You're not even to do those things because you just like the feeling you have when you've put in a good day's work. Those are all great things. And I'm not saying you should reject those things that you, when they come. But the reason, the purpose for your hard work and for your diligent and excellent labor is because you have another king. Your king is Jesus. And you've trusted his gospel. And when you trust the gospel of Jesus, everything else in your life, the most important and time-consuming parts of your life, they, they become, in a sense, one huge thank you note to Jesus for what he has done for you in his death and resurrection. You see, the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and was raised from the dead, ensuring your utter acceptance with God, that message, that news, it, it frees you. And, and it frees you to work hard. It frees you to work hard for God's glory and for the good of your neighbor. And it frees you from working hard for money or power or prestige. You see, you see, the gospel enables you to put work in its proper place. 
It's a super, super important part of your life, and God is honored when you do it well, but it is not ultimate. It's not God. It's not what you worship. And so the gospel speaks to to those of us who have a tendency to overwork. Many of us probably fall into that boat. Those of us who overwork oftentimes love our job, and when we overwork, we tend to fall into the trap of our work becoming our functional God. We're workaholics. We bow down before the throne of efficiency and work and the thrill that we get from doing what God put us on this earth to do. I get that. But the gospel frees you from that because it says that you now worship a different king. Your king is not your work. Jesus is your king. But the gospel also frees you from underwork, from only doing what's necessary to do, even in a job you don't like, so that you can have fun with the money that you make from it. That's all your job is. It's just an avenue for you to pursue pleasure. The gospel frees you from that as well. It, it tells you that, that your security and your happiness and your joy are not found in all the things that your work's going to potentially bring. You know they're found in Jesus. They're found in acceptance with God the Father through the shed blood of Christ for your sins. And therefore, you can go and work hard and yet not make work an idol. You see how deeply the gospel affects those, those of us who are workers, those of us who are employees, those of us who spend the vast majority of our time at an office or at a hospital or on a military installation somewhere. The gospel radically affects, and there's so much more we can say, your life as an employee. Well, the gospel, secondly, also offers a new way for employers. Now, I know some of you here are, by and large, employers. You have people under you. You're the one that calls the shots. You're the one who sets the vision. You're the one who's leading the way. You're the one who makes the profit margin what it is. You are in charge. And Paul has words for you as well. Look back in the text. Colossians chapter 3 goes into Colossians chapter 4. And in the very first verse, he says there, Masters or employers, treat your slaves, your laborers, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So let's ask the same two questions for employers that we did for employees. How should you honor God as an employer, and then why? So how? What does it look like for you to be a Christian and have people under your authority? Well, first, and very obviously, you're to be just, impartial, and fair. You see that there? I mean, Paul couldn't be clearer. Treat your slaves justly and fairly. And think about how radical, by the way, that would have been in the ancient world. Slaves weren't even viewed as people. They were viewed as property. And Paul says here that Christianity is so radical in its social consequences that it says that masters are to treat slaves not as property, but as people who were made in God's image and have rights and have dignity. They are to care for them. They are to be just and equitable and fair to them. And the reason for that is because workers... Or employers are are not ultimate. The how is that you should be just and that you should be equitable. And the why is that you are not God. Look at what he says. You also have a master. Yeah, you call the shots even at your Fortune 10 company. But you are not God. You have built a successful small business, but you are not God. You have planted a church, but you are not God. You have a master. And therefore, you should treat those who are under your charge justly and fairly. What does that look like? Well, it means you shouldn't try to motivate people, I think, by power or coercion. 
Paul says in the sister letter of Colossians, Ephesians, Ephesians 6, don't speak to your employees harshly. Rather, you motivate them because they're loyal to you, because you care about them and their well-being and their flourishing. It means that you might at some time not make as much money as you otherwise would so that your employers can have a better wage and a better life and care for their children well. It means that you are gracious and willing to listen and work with employees who are undergoing difficult life situations or circumstances. It means that you don't put your own interests first. And that's a radical thing in the business world. It means that you put the interests of your employees above your own. Do you get that? The reason you do that is because that's just what your master did for you and does for you every day. You're to be fair and just, and moreover, you're to be generous, gracious, kind. That doesn't mean you're a pushover. It doesn't mean you can't fire people if they deserve it. It doesn't mean that you can't drive a tight ship and seek to make more money. Those are not bad things. But it does mean that you are to think about the well-being of those whom God has put under you. Because you are no better than them if you have letters after your name, if you have more of an education, or if your bank statement is much, much different and you're in a different tax bracket. No, the gospel says that the ultimate master, the king of this entire universe, the boss of all bosses, gave up all of his prerogatives and rights And did not come to be served by his employees and his bondservants, but to serve and to give his life for them. The master, the boss of bosses came and washed the feet of his employees. The master wasn't a pushover. The master wasn't some pansy who couldn't lead or think or craft a clear strategy and vision. But the master was one who was willing to give up his own interests for the good of those who were below him. And that's what the gospel calls you to if you are in this position, a master, an employer, someone who is responsible for others. It's a radical concept, but the gospel is a radical piece of news. I'm going to close with this story. Uh, Tim Keller has written a great book on work. Uh, It's called Every Good Endeavor. There's a lot of stuff in there that's very, very helpful. I would commend it to you if you're more interested in this subject. And in in one part of that book, he he tells a story about... um, a young woman who was a rising executive in New York. His church is in New York City. And um, she was, you know, down on Wall Street and working really hard, putting in like 80, 90 hours a week. And one day she made a big, big mistake. Like it was all on her. She messed up. And it was like a Friday. And she goes back into work Monday, gets called into the office, and she expects to get fired. I mean, this is a cutthroat industry. And she goes in, and the CEO or whoever it is says to her, Listen, um, your immediate supervisor took the blame for this one. He took the fall, so you're good to go. Just don't let it happen again. And she was so intrigued by this that she went and banged on her immediate supervisor's door, and, and when he didn't answer, she let herself in. And she said, you know, I've had a lot of people that are ahead of me take credit for my work, but I've never had anyone take the blame for my failures. What in the world would you do that for? And, you know, he's a very modest guy, and he didn't want to say anything, but she pressed him because she's a, she's a Wall Street executive, and that's what she did, I guess. And eventually he said, okay, listen, I'm a Christian. And among other things, that means that because Jesus took my blame 
When I have the opportunity, I want to do similar things for other people. Because, because Jesus gave away what he earned and deserved to serve me who didn't earn or deserve anything except his displeasure. Because Jesus did that for me. I, when I have the opportunity, I, I love to do that for others. And her response was, where do you go to church? She visited Redeemer and came to faith in Christ. You see, when we live out the gospel in our work lives, when, we are a, when we're a whole person, and not compartmentalized on Sunday and then Monday through Friday, when we're seeking to more and more apply the truth that we profess with our mouths in the most important parts of our daily lives, we see God do good work on us and through us. As I look out on you, I see a group of gifted people whom God has called to all sorts of phases and vocations and callings. And I get excited to think about what could possibly happen if we more and more consistently applied what Jesus did for us in how we treat the people that we rub shoulders with 40 to 60 hours a week, whether we're giving orders or taking them. May the gospel change us in such profound ways that it's evident to everyone. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. And Lord, the Bible tells us again and again that that grace matters, that it does impact us. And we ask that you would forgive us for our failure to apply and take in being a follower of Christ into our everyday lives. And we ask that you would help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to more and more reflect the way of Jesus and the grace of Jesus in the way we work. Make us good workers, people who are diligent and faithful and honest because we know that we are really, at the end of the day, serving you. And make us good employers and masters as well who care for his employees or her employees and who seeks for their good and their flourishing. And Father, may our radical, countercultural lifestyle make a difference. Make a difference in the way our businesses are operated and in the way we seek to care for people and in the way we operate in the United States Air Force and in whatever else we do, oh God. We ask that we would more and more be conformed in every part of our lives into the image of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.